Hello, and welcome to Movies We Dig, the podcast about film, antiquity, and today, musicals, and everything in between. I'm Christy Vogler. <laughs> and I'm Elijah Fleming. <laughs> and I'm Colin McCormick. And today, we're talking about Town, a musical created by Anais Mitchell and directed by Rachel Chadkin, which originally debuted in 2006, became an album, and hit Broadway in 2019 before COVID. Also, today, we have a very special guest to me. We have Sam Leifert here, a student from the University of Lynchburg, and they were part of my Greek civilization class. And Sam wrote an amazing analysis of the musical, and I asked them to join us today so that we could look at this. We've never really done a musical before, so we are really excited to discuss this with Sam today. And our question we always love to start with is... Did you dig this? I would say, yes, I definitely dig the production. It was a lot of fun to listen to, and it's just as much fun to look at videos from. Nice. So have you ever seen this live, Sam? I wanted to see it live. I thought about going last October, but I was unable to actually make the trip just due to class commitments. Gotcha. Because I feel like I now desperately want to see this live after having watched... I had listened to the music a little bit previously, but then I, we watched the... <laughs> you can cut that out. You can believe that. <laughs> we, we saw it somehow. Yeah, I just... I desperately want to see this live now. I can't believe how much fun this was. And I have, like, goosebumps. I had goosebumps the whole time. Yeah, I- I wanted to know how what um I'm curious what people like because I had heard some of the songs but I I've known people who they're musical theater heads who will listen to the whole album and then you know if you listen to I feel like the whole album you get a very good sense of the musical but but I want to know what people like how they did they had they come into this sort of because I came in more or less on a blank slit like I had heard one or two of the songs but I hadn't like listened to the whole album or anything like that. I will say one of the fun parts about this particular musical is that uh, it's a sung through musical, meaning it has very little to no spoken lines. So just by listening to the entire album, you can get a very, very good sense of the entire storyline and all you're lacking is the visuals. Very true. Yeah. yeah. So, so had you listened to, were you familiar with the music prior to seeing any sort of version of this or, or was it bo- both and or anything like that? I was very familiar, and I had been listening to it for weeks on end in preparation for writing my paper. <laughs> nice. nice. It's the best kind of research. <laughs> I, <should write>. I try. <laughs> um, yeah, so I was very much the same where um, I had listened to the musical. I don't, someone directed me to it, and I forget who it was, and I was hooked just on the music pretty quick. And it, as Sam said, you get the pretty much the entire story right there, which I had listened to Hamilton before and had not watched it and realized there's like, there's some big things that happen between the songs that it, unless you visually see it, you don't know what happened. Um, and that was not the case here. And I think part of why I was so excited about this, and we, we might talk about this a little bit, is to me, if we really wanted to recreate Greek myth authentically, I feel like Broadway is the best way to do it with the music and the visuals and I just thought this was so cool. And so when I finally got to see, I I saw like NPR's tiny concert. So I got to see some of the interactions and interplay from uh, between some of the singers. 
I think when they were on the Tonys, they did one of the numbers as well, which was Wait For Me. Um, and yeah. that was amazing to watch uh, for the production. So finally getting to see the whole thing play out and just the visual element is so important to the story as well that I, same as Elijah Goosebumps, like this is so cool. Definitely, yeah. I think it it even has like a chorus of fates, right? Like they are the equivalent in like a Greek play, they they come in and they sort of explain the transitions and they talk to the main characters. And Hades was definitely like up there for me, but I really loved the fates as well. I made that note as well, where I sort of wrote the fates. And then I later went back in and added in Hermes too, because he kind of has the role of like the chorus leader yeah. where very often in like a Greek tragedy, you have the chorus and the chorus leader who comes out and they interface kind of like, like the chorus in a typical Greek tragedy. And it changes if you study Greek tragedy between say like the way Aeschylus uses the chorus and way Euripides uses the chorus. But in generally they kind of serve as like an interface between character and audience and performance where they're sort of in some ways like doing some interpreting and interacting and back and forth. And I feel like the, cause the fates, the, the fates were great. Like you were saying where they were kind of in it, but also not like they're interacting with the characters, but they're also kind of aloof and observing sort of the whole thing like you don't really you get a sense they don't really have like a stake in the the plot as much as the other characters do yeah there's a good moment of that in one of the early numbers where i'm gonna hate saying eurydice so i'm gonna keep saying eurydice i'm pretty sure but like when she's lighting the candle and she like turns away for a second and one of the fates blows it out so she has to like uh, relight it but you you don't really see like she's not realizing the fates are hovering around her waiting to see what kind of choices she's going to make throughout the story. That was something that I really liked being able to see the performances the way that because I was wondering to myself like this would actually be this is we, we've talked a bunch about like the process of adaptation and like this is something I think about all the time where like certain media or mediums are like better for certain stories. And when you adapt one story from one to another, like I think it's very particular, like animation to live action very often can be a bit of a rough transition. Musical is the same thing because I was thinking like, I don't think you could do this as like a film necessarily because there's so many things that sort of revolve around like the way the characters are standing and walking around each other and the way the stage moves and they sort of rotate around each other and the way it's sort of visually, you know, the set never really changes aside from some tables and chairs and some lighting. But there's a lot of like in your mind's eye, which I think is one of those things that's so compelling about theater, like live theater is, you know, you have to do a bit of imagination on your behalf to like understand what's going on. But like, you're generally fine with it. Like, I don't mind like picturing, I don't need a lot of effects to know that like this character is in the middle of a storm or something like that. Yeah, no, I agree. Totally. I don't know when would be the best time, but Sam, I do want to hear about the paper that you wrote for Christy's class because she's told me a little bit about it and it might be when we get a little deeper into plot. So maybe we could briefly talk about just sort of how this story is set up in this world. It's like very steampunk like version, right? Uh, the, the the phrase I came to was um, Marty got crust punk. Okay. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I've been talking enough, so yeah, Sam. <laughs> See, every time I look at it, I think American Deep South, early 1900s, maybe all the way up to 1930. And I feel like so much of the design goes into that. You have the um, the table and chairs are very industrial in style. Rachel Halcom designed the bar that we see in the opening to look like it's within an oil drum. 
which I thought was really beautiful to look at once you once you recognize it, see it every time you look at it. There's a lot of rust caked on to all the different set pieces, especially in the uh, Hades Town set versus the bar. And I feel like all of that goes so well with how corrupted Hades has become by his greed and by his how much he misses Persephone. Yeah. 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 I was watching an interview with Anais Mitchell and Rachel Chavkin, and they were saying how the, in the original sort of the songs that sort of inspired the rest of the thing, there were, it was very heavy, like trombone and rhythm section, which kind of led to like a very kind of New Orleans, big band, second line kind of style, which led to like exactly that. Sam's exactly right. Like early 20th century, like streetcar named Desire kind of thing going on. And then, yeah, they, but also they're saying like, it's got the Louisiana influence both in that like, the bar is kind of reminiscent of like Preservation Hall or like these old jazz clubs in New Orleans, but simultaneously like the oil and industry in Louisiana and like the oil drum and that Hades is kind of, he's like a captain of industry. He's Mm -hmm. like a, you know, Andrew Carnegie type of guy. You know, you see him like he's got people on the railroads or like in the oil fields or in the steel refineries, you know, that and that, that like particular kind of like turn of the century American wealth Mm -hmm. And it sort of all feeds into one another, which I think is like, I think it's a great, it's like an inspired sort of choice for, as a, as a depiction of Hades. Absolutely. Um, yeah. The the other part of the stage that I really liked was the balcony. Um, Cause if you go to the French quarter in New Orleans, it's like, that's exactly what you see all over and how almost always, I think there's the one exception is, well, I don't know for sure. Cause like didn't see the best version of this, which is live <laughs> of course, but um, it seems like the only people who are in that space are the gods or when Eurydice has to go and uh, make the deal with Hades behind closed doors. So I just wanted to do a shout out to the, the balcony too, because I thought that was really Which cool. I wanted to ask, because maybe this is just me being a little bit too much of like a literary head case about this kind of thing. But I was reading that as an inner text with Hamilton, where the, like the room where it happened. And like, I'm not sure if that was deliberate or purely just self-imposed by me, but I want to know if anyone else made that connection. Yeah, I don't I don't think that they overlap that way. Like I think Hamilton mm-hmm. might have been a little bit later than this in the original, maybe. But it, I mean that's such a tradition but, of mm-hmm. of Greek yeah. plays anyway. Like someone things happening off happen screen. Yeah. And then you get told about it afterwards. Um, yeah. 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 I was just gonna say in particular madness episodes that were like her, Heracles is struck by madness and kills his entire family. You don't see that on stage. <laughs> yeah, or Medea and her children, yeah. or yeah. any any act of violence in a Greek tragedy always happens off stage, and you might hear something from the wings, mm-hmm. or it's usually described sort of secondhand. Very often, there will be like a messenger character who comes in and says, "Like you're like oh, like craziest thing happened. Pentheus went up to the mountain and he was torn <laughs> apart by women. Um, things like that. Craziest thing. Uh, yeah. So we could actually." It might be a good segue to talk about sort of this as a sort of adaptation of the Orpheus story because it, it's in, in some ways I think very it, I mean it's very it's the Orpheus story which we all know like it doesn't in the sort of major plot beats but it's also a very particular and, and departs from kind of versions of Orpheus that we get in classical literature like say Ovid or, or Virgil or something like that I wanted to actually see the Florida Sam first when you came into to, uh, Hades Town you know how much sort of myth baggage were you bringing in with you when I listened to it the first time, I only knew the outline of Orpheus and Eurydice. I knew that he wouldn't be able to rescue her. 
And as I worked on my paper for Dr. Vogler, that's when I started to read the original myths. And I mostly focused on uh, Ovid and Virgil's version. Mm-hmm. And within that, I would, I would say that um, Ovid's version is probably more like the musical that we see on stage. I feel like that one focuses so much more on how tragic the whole series of events is, while Virgil's is much more of an epic in that sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and Virgil's comes in like a weirder kind of context because it's nested inside a four book poem about agriculture in the fourth book about bees. And it's even in that it's nested inside of another, which is like the, the kind of thing that gets me as like a classical scholar, like really excited when there's like myths nested in within myth within like lessons about apiaries. Uh, but, but yeah, cause it's like a story of this Aristeas and it's the story is being told to another mythological character. And so there's like these, like n- there's like a nesting doll version of. I was just going to add Mitchell does ends up doing that as well within this play because the epics the song that orpheus is working on is easily you could trace that to the homeric hymn to demeter telling You're this right. love sto- well love mm-hmm. story yeah i'm sure we will un- like that's what's really interesting too is the actual relationship between hades and persephone we'll get to that i'm sure but like yeah orpheus is trying to turn it into a love story and like I don't necessarily like the song. Like I love so many of these songs, but the epics are not the la la la. la, la. They're not (laughs) high up there for me. But like what I did enjoy is like, that was a really good representation of the Homeric hymns. And Orpheus is a bard who would compose these and try to, you know, come Mm -hmm. up with the correct storyline to get the reaction from his audience. So I, I liked that element of that. There is a story within the story, which we do see with mythology. Like, it happens in the Iliad all the time too. Yeah, so. yeah. This is a, a not a trope necessarily, but it's a feature sometimes of particularly like movies and TV and, and plays to a lesser extent. But when you like, you, you end up kind of forcing yourself into a box sometimes when you say like, and when a character in your story is going to write like the greatest song ever, and then you have to sort of deliver that, like you're setting a bar really, it, it's not, it's one thing when you just like have a really good song that sort of, you know, yeah. pops. But then when you're setting it up in the actual story is like, this is going to be the greatest song ever that's going to like end war and like change the world. And then you actually have to deliver like a song that you've promised is the greatest song in the world. Like it's very, it, it always, I think kind of falls because I think that's exactly it. Like maybe if just on its own, if you just heard the epics, you'd be like, yeah, it's a nice song. But like in the play, when you're like, you're being told like, this is the song that's going to change the world. You kind of come at it like extra critically. It reminds me of like that that Tenacious D song where they're like <laughs> describing the greatest song in the world, oh my God. but they're like, "This isn't actually, the, yeah, this isn't actually the song. It's just a tribute to that song." I did not think that um, there would be a Tenacious D reference, <laughs> Colin, in today's to be podcast. Fair, visually, we only ever see a single flower pop up. So, like, yeah, that's true. I would say I don't yeah. know if like if it's like it's supposed to bring everything back on track, but it never claimed to be like the best song. It was just yeah. the song that was going to fix everything. <laughs> Maybe I just read that into it, like, which is still a lot to ask from a song. I feel sure. like. that, that was um. the interesting part of the composition, because I think at some point Hermes comments like, wait, where did you get that melody? And and there's a sense of familiarity that Hades has with the song, too, when Orpheus finally performs it for him, where it's like this song already existed, but it was forgotten. And Orpheus mm. is simply trying to remember it and trying to, at the same time, make Persephone and Hades remember their love for each other which might be a little bit more of a reasonable ask it's like as long as Hades and Persephone likes it that's true do you really need anything else yeah as long as it like jogs some memories that that's what we need (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
Well, yeah, or there's another, this is a deep cut reference, but I don't know if anyone here ever watched Studio 60, which was an, an Aaron Sorkin TV show that debuted around like the mid to late aughts, but it was about like a, a Saturday Night Live type show. But like one of the criticisms of Aaron Sorkin's show is like the show in his show that's supposed to be like the funniest, biggest, loudest, most biting satirical comedy ever is like not that good, um, and, which kind of undercuts the whole thing, but uh i I'll, this is a uh ancient culture and film podcast not an aaron sorkin podcast, i was like so in I'll... my head going oh, nerd but like different kind of nerd because we're all nerds but still yeah <laughs> we're we're jumping all over the place which is par for the course for us but um i i looked up the vanity fair interview with Mitchell and um part of the story was inspired by delaire's book of greek myth Greek myths, which made, made me feel good. Very nice. Um, I am a big fan. And yeah. I'm sure we'll, we'll start going through songs, but she was aiming for looking at like the setting being during the dust bowl storm, dust bowl storms of the 30s, and she called it a vintage version of climate change. Um, yes, which, absolutely. Yeah. What, I want to come back to the the political and yeah. ecological commentary Definitely. and and going to the political part is she was influenced by the re-election of george w bush trump was not involved in any of this even though the wall is i'm sure we'll get to talk about that but oh, yes. um yes 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 mm-hmm. she said so Hades Town became a mashup of me being an idealistic activist kid coming out of school and then hitting the reality of the world and seeing this guy getting elected again and not knowing how deep the corruption was all those elements exist in Hades Town about the naive artists and is it possible that art can change the world? And that's kind of like the question she kind of leaves us with for this entire thing. Can art, can Orpheus and his song make a, a change in the world? And I, I don't know, it feels very ambiguous by the end. So Speaking of the end, the thing I wanted to also mention was speaking of just sort of Orpheus remembering the song is that that motif Hermes has where it's like we already know the end of the story, but we keep telling it mm-hmm. thinking it's going to be different. And which I thought was the most interesting thing that this I love that uh, this play was doing. It's the idea of like because of asking that question of like why do we keep retelling a story which has such a dismal ending that we already know yeah. it's coming? Yeah. And well, they and they say it in the beginning, right? He's like, "This is a tragedy. This is a sad story." Yeah. <laughs> and I, I heard that. I was, like, yeah, it is. And and still, by the end, I was still like rooting for them. Of course, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah you're really hoping it's like maybe, maybe this time, maybe, maybe this time, this time. <laughs> maybe this time. Yeah, this isn't quite the same, but I have a very like distinct memory of when. Game of Thrones was coming out and there was the duel between Oberyn and the mountain. And like for a split second, I, and I had already like read the books. Like I knew what was going to happen and for a split second. I was like, maybe he will win. And then it of course goes, it goes sideways on you. And then I was like, well, I feel like an idiot now for like, even like entertaining that like sliver of hope. Um, like I said, I think I took us beginning to end all in that one carryover. But that's how these poems work. They're like big rings, yeah. right? The beginning yeah. is the end and we can we start all over again. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so act one. Let's talk Let's talk act one. I, okay, just general commentary. I love so many of the songs in act one, but to me, all the visually interesting stuff is really happening in act two. So it's like yeah. interesting combination there. I think pro- probably because a lot of act two, with the exception of Persephone's second song, which I do love. And the I think... The Wall is also on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, 
everything's kind of a rehash of themes that have already been sung in the previous act. So like you do get to kind of focus on the results now right. of all the decisions being made. So yeah, act one, I love song wise and it was still fun visually with the first song being uh, Road to Hell as kind of the introduction of everyone. Yeah, we got gods in the house. And the refrain I was repeating in my sleep, which is uh, Orpheus was a poor boy. Uh. (laughs) I do love that he has this kind of like clueless air about him, just sort of like staring off into space and like looking at things that he maybe thinks are pretty or like beautiful. And I, I kind of love that about an interpretation of Orpheus. I feel like that works really well. They're meat cute. Adorable. Adorable. <laughs> yeah, those are just great songs. It's like, hey, like, I love Hermes. It's just like, all right, all right. You think she's pretty. All right, just chill. Like, go, go in soft. <laughs> like, come home with me. <laughs> it's like, no, no. <laughs> what? <laughs> Which is, again, that's a tough, I think that's a very tough what's the word I'm looking for? Like a tough thing to do because you're also like in addition to the things like and similarly in the vein of, you know, setting up a super important work of art inside your work of art that you kind of have to deliver, but also setting up like a love for the ages, right? Which is like, particularly now or like, I think audiences today think a little more critically about like meet cutes and romantic comedies and things like that. Not that this is a romantic comedy, but that trope of like boy meets girl and to really sell. And I think this, this the play does a really good job of like selling, like I didn't really need to be convinced, like the the less time it's spent on like them falling in love, the better. Cause like, I didn't need to be convinced like how they fell in love. It's more important that just that they are in love. Yeah. Cause I think the longer you just throw an arrows down there and have an I arrow mean, was, and continue had, the story. Yeah. All you need in uh, in Virgil is a, is an arrow and a simile about a deer. And then like your work is done. That's true. Um, That's true. But I think it, that gets really interesting when we get to like Hades and Hey Little Songbird and like what mm-hmm. that, I think that's a a pretty big variation, I feel like, from the original myth, which is like Eurydice, what, is she gets bit by a snake, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Which there's like a, an allusion to. He's got the like coins or whatever, yeah. the rattle. The yeah. Um, so it's the rattlesnake and the songbird. But it's it's much more like, I don't know, it's much scarier here. It's like manipulative. I don't know, it's way scarier in this version, I feel like, because it's, it's a real choice that she thinks she gets to make and it's it's not a choice at all right she's being lured in and i thought that was a really terrifying but very effective change from the original and i that song i think really stuck with me sam you're the expert here shine your wisdom upon us (laughs) i can't say that i am particularly well versed with songbird versus rattlesnake But I did think it was interesting how um, with the scene before, during chant, Hades is talking to Persephone and he's saying that if she doesn't want him anymore, then he'll find someone who does. And in that sense, they kind of liken Hades' interest in Eurydice to almost being like an affair. And I thought that was, I thought that had interesting implications, especially given how Orpheus comes in and basically saves their marriage later in the second act. You're right. And I, I think that also gives more weight to like things that happen behind closed doors, right? That was it, kind of Room where it happened in her text? Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Like That's the, just me. Especially because she's begging for Orpheus to not ask questions about like what happened. So there is this, and, and like Hades is a powerful, rich 
I love that there's so much allusions to like this other role that Hades has that we always forget. It's like, yes, you're king of the underworld, but like you got all the jewels and gems and yeah. gold and silver. All so he's rich. I was just, I'm teaching a mythology course right now and we just did Hades uh, last week, I think. And in all of his epithets and a lot of his old like, uh, like reconstructions and things of his name, like really emphasize the wealth aspect, like Pluto and Dis and things like that. And that he is the wealthy God. And he says something in the Homeric hymn to Demeter towards the end where Persephone is going to leave or is going back up to the surface. And Hades says, you know, like, being queen here in the underworld with me isn't that bad because eventually you get to be queen of everything. Or like, you know, when you rule in the underworld, eventually you're ruler over all because everything at one point or the other ends up in the underworld, which is, I think, kind of an angle that's going on with, you know, because Hades is the the industrialist capitalist in this thing. Like everything's going to belong to Hades in the end. And then that's something that Eurydice wants to be a part of. She wants to know what it's like to have everything and to not want for anything. I love that idea of that being the sort of the lure of like, I I will take care of you because that is such a real world concept of like, nobody wants to be hungry. Nobody wants to be cold out in the storm. And I think that is terrifying in that sense in that she, the beginning when she's trapped of act two when she's trapped in in like the chain gang almost is is such a terrifying realization for her and it ah it just it all felt almost too real it was so well done yeah this brings me back to some of the things that sam wrote in their paper that was part of what yuriki wants is to feel alive and that's the the line from not wedding song but the one right before it um, come home like, with me Come home with me. Yeah. So it's part of Come Home With Me where Hermes is like, what, she asked Hermes, why should I give him a chance? Like, he'll make you feel alive. And to feel alive, I think we talk about this a lot with mental health and stuff. It's like, it's one thing to be alive and it's another thing to be living. And then later she is really presented with this choice of like, do you want to be surviving with the chance to be alive? Or do you want to not want for anything, but then you're not really living anymore either. Um, and that's a really tough choice to have to make because neither option is great as it's presented in this play. If I could be indulged for a second, I kind of want to go on a bit of a tangent on another musical, uh, which I think is the sort of inverse of what it is, but in a musical that gets under my skin and I could rant about for a long time, but that the musical in question which has a, a very unhelpful and, and maybe even bad read on like poverty and wealth, which is Rent. Um, Interesting. Where Rent kind of very much glamorizes this kind of artistic bohemian poverty where the characters in Rent are, you know, poor, but they're also like kind of poor by choice. Like they could always just pick up the phone from mom and go back to their Midwest comfort or whatever it is they're from. But and it's sort of really like, it almost like fetishizes this kind of poverty, which is one of the many things that bugs me about Rent, that and and its fans. But um, uh, I'm going to alienate a lot of people. But uh, like, and it's music. Quiet, Colin. <laughs> no, I just I, I gotta let it known how much I don't like how much Rent bugs me. But where was I going with this? That's kind of like uh, it's a detached kind of almost voyeuristic view of poverty, whereas like poverty and need in this feel much more real and lived in and that like Eurydice's choice is grounded in like these very real necessities and this like kind of 
this this catch 22 that she's caught in and like christy was just saying the choice between sort of surviving and living and like the bleakness of that that whole thing (laughs) within that there's a sense of how she's similar to hades because in the second act there is this entire bit where the fates are telling hades that he's damned if he does and damned if he doesn't let eurydice and orpheus go and in the same sense she's damned if she decides to lie down and die but she's damned if she doesn't Either way, Mm -hmm. there is no way that this will work out in her favor. And that, in and of itself, her very first death is a tragedy. Ah, it's so true. That was a good read. so good. Just end it right there. Uh. What is the story? I forget where it is, but they talked about Zeus, like, creating two bags to give to mankind. And one is either a mixed bag or it's a bag of all bad things. You don't get just a good bag. Yeah. I, Iliad 24 is what you're thinking about. Where there, of there's, course, there's two jars in front of – yeah, this is like literally my job is to know. Uh, but yeah, in Iliad 24, Achilles is talking to Priam and, and Priam is trying to get Achilles to give back the body of his son Hector. And Achilles says something to the effect of like in front of Zeus's house, there are two jars and one's got bad and one's got good and bad. And he – every day he grabs some and mixes it up and, and, and sprinkles it on us down here. And some days you get all bad and some days you get good myth the bad. Uh, but never good. But yeah. Never all good. Never. No, nobody gets from the all good no. jar. That's that's well, just there not is how no all works. good jar. Like that's the <laughs> yeah. the whole thing, right? It's like you can't the the world doesn't work in like just mm-hmm. black or just white, right? Like there are always shades of gray, but, or everything's mm-hmm. just terrible. <laughs> but see, for Orpheus, it does work that way. He does see just the good, and that's part of what makes him such an interesting character to so many others within the musical is that he has this vision of the world the way that it could be instead of the way that it is and that's what allows him to draw in Eurydice. Just to build off that idea a little bit and I, I don't I generally am not super into like auteur theory but like do you read Orpheus as a sort of author insert for Aeneas because in the way like her sort of it's funny I saw an interview with Aeneas and, and Rachel Chavkin talking with their first names like I know them but <laughs> um but where they kind of have this like I don't want to say like push and pull or like quirky serious diet but they do have that where like Aeneas has these very kind of the sort of idealistic or like a little you know head in the clouds um, sort of a little bit yeah like she has that and then she's she's the musical and lyrics and then and Chavkin was very much like the not the literalist the realizer where she like puts it all and she gives like she gives like very sort of thought out answers about like why the set was designed the way it was and like the imagery they're trying to invoke and they have that kind of like synergy and so like in that sense you know, maybe to push this a little further, like Aeneas feels to me like the, the character she is most like in the story is Orpheus, both in that they're both musicians, but in their side of that worldview that Sam was just talking about. Which is funny because didn't she like sing for Eurydice? Yep. For yep, the she, early yeah. versions of the show, mm-hmm. which I think is really funny. If like if she is sort of writing herself and then playing the other half, I kind of love that. That's mm-hmm. really interesting oh this like this show made me feel so many feelings and i'm still feeling them there's a joke from parks and rec where uh and Sar's character tom he's like the art made me have an emotional reaction is that normal (laughs) (laughs) i figured we could probably actually talk about the relationship between hades and persephone and how that is explored here because it's interesting yeah, I feel like I want Sam to talk about this because I, I read part of your paper and I know that Persephone is a character that you discuss. I think with Persephone and Hades' relationship, 
at the very beginning of the show, when they're introduced, we see them playing chess, which I think is very interesting considering how later on in that act, we see that he definitely has so much of a pull on her. So it seems once he comes to collect her, it seems like it's a very uneven relationship. And like he's the one holding all the power. But then you see as soon as she stops drinking in act two, she stops putting up with that. She stops allowing herself to be manipulated and starts acting as that equal player that she was at the very top of the show. Like that. Yeah. I forgot about the chess, actually. That, I think, is a very telling feature of, like, they're somehow, like, very equal in that in that setting. And they're playing this very difficult and very complex game against each other. I like that. I also like how um, so much of this is, and Sam talks about this in their paper, too, of how, like, Hades is obsessed with a lot of things like accruing wealth, but also it feels like all of the changes that Hades makes to the underworld is to entice Persephone to stay longer. At the beginning of Act 2, she comes down and is like, it's the middle of winter. Why is it so hot down here? And why is it yeah. so bright down here? And you you can tell that Hades is doing everything he can to build a world that is similar to the surface so that Persephone won't leave him anymore. Which is interesting because it there's this deal in place. But we also realize like Persephone could stay if she wanted to. She just wants to go to the surface and needs to for the mortals' sakes, for sure. But and I think that's what that's my favorite like opening line between them too. Is like you know there's affection between them still because well at least at least for Hades, because he shows up with the train and Persephone's like, You're early. And she's like, I missed you, hon. So cute. I like it. Except it becomes too possessive to a point. Well, yeah, and all the the things that he does are like she her reaction is it's unnatural, right? She's like, it's not supposed to be this way, like, which is both sweet, but also it's from her perspective, it's it's kind of terrifying. I think that particular transition between um, Epic 2 and Chant is just so telling because you see after Orpheus leaves, the stage is just bathed in this orange light for a second. And as Persephone and Hades come up using the central lift, there's just this cold white spotlight shining on their faces and it, it shows you just how much fear and disgust and horror Persephone feels at this new world that Hades has created. Like, like <laughs> And even like his, I think maybe this might be a segue to like kind of his, his failings as a sort of partner are sort of rooted or mirrored in like his kind of his worldview, which is like that of like the captain of industry. And then like the, the desire to sort of control and, and exploit and utilize this goes into both the sort of political commentary. That's kind of, and again, like this, we, we mentioned that the, the, the conception for a lot of this goes, you know, way back before say 2016, but also a lot of it really resonates in a post 2016 environment, like the wall being the most obvious, but, but the sort of political and, and ecological criticism that's happening of like, this is, not a sustainable or an ultimately productive worldview, neither for your marriage or for the world at large. They're all nodding their heads, listeners. Yes, by the way. <laughs> like, I can't mm, see it, yes. but they're all like, mm, words being yes. said. Oh, yes. I think, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah the, I need audio confirmation <laughs> for my vanity. <laughs> I think, yeah, the, the whole build the wall conversation is so interesting to me. Who is the enemy and the enemy is poverty. Yeah. Um, we build the wall to keep us free. Ooh. Yeah. 
Well, in the, the very last line of that song to, or like not the very last line, but like the last sort of element of the song is um, what is it that they, that all they want that we're keeping them out for? It's like this wall to build upon. We have the work and you just realize like, really, that's, that's what everyone wants. Nobody wants to be doing that. And yet it's the cyclical process of like, but freedom grants us this ability to do the work which other people supposedly want, and we have to keep people from getting it. And uh, yeah. That's like the paradox of capitalism right there. That is right the there. paradox it's of like- capitalism <laughs> in a song. Uh-uh. <laughs> the There was a, an interview with, with um, Mitchell and Chavkin we're discussing where we're in one of the early sort of stages of their collaboration. Anais Mitchell said something to the effect of like, I want it to be poetry, not prose. And then Chavkin, very cleverly, like at first I sort of took that to mean everything needs to rhyme. But then <laughs> later, and, and I wrote down the quote because I, I thought it was really good, that the idea of like having it be poetry is to get the most essentialized amount of language for the densest amount of meaning. So like, I think they, why do we build the wall? We build the wall to keep us free is like a perfect example of that. Like very few words. A lot of meaning. A lot of meaning. Yes. And yeah, we keep the enemy out and the enemy is poverty is very much this capitalism scare of production, 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 and that poverty is some sort of moral failing and that production is a morally good or a value and that like really I'm just writing this dissertation chapter about people being hungry right now so that like <laughs> said a lot of things to me <laughs> just in like personal research wise it was it's very chills just chills I have no more words I have just chills <laughs> Laja has all the feels for this which is maybe a first in a while for one of I know you saying you, you you didn't have the feelings during the last legion apologies to Massimo Manfredi for I keep dunking on his movie but uh, that didn't stir an emotional uh, it really did it really yeah. did it oh yeah. and uh okay so Hades being obsessed is kind of romantic and I think that fits pretty well with the original motif like he sees Persephone and wants her for himself and just abducts her and in some ways he loses control of the situation because his brother Zeus interferes and this deal is made and so like it's very interesting that Hades is usually I love Disney's Hercules but like he's villainized a lot of the times and there's this idea of maybe he is upset with the lot he got between the brothers to be in the underworld Mm -hmm. and now there's this newer through romantic young adult novels and things like that to kind of revitalize his character as a just a poor lonely boy who really really just wants someone to love him. I mean, that's like the arc of pop culture, right? Like you start with the vampire and then it's like, what if the vampire was the sad boy? And then and you work from there, right? Yep. And also, and this is fresh on the brain because I was just teaching it, but in, in the Homeric Hymn, which is the kind of core text for the Persephone myth, it's Zeus is the one who arranges. Now, I thought it was sort of interesting that pretty much all the other gods are absent from, from this play, but Zeus is the one who arranges for, um, he essentially is the one giving away Persephone to his brother. Uh, and But then he only intervenes later when Demeter is basically starving the world and then the sacrifices dry up. And that's when Zeus <laughs> suddenly starts to give a shit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, when it becomes his problem. Uh, no. Zeus doesn't deal with things until it becomes his problem. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> or like in in we were talking about the the Hades game where in that one it sort of implied that Hades sort of did have a fondness for Persephone but in that game spoilers for those who haven't played 
Zeus basically sort of arranges for Persephone's escape because she wants to leave Olympus and gives her to, to Hades, but he didn't really consult either of them in the process, and so, which is why Hades is so upset with Zeus that he basically like kidnapped a woman and gave him and gave her to him. And Zeus just like doesn't see like why like where he went wrong in that situation, like why like why what he did was like inconsiderate, <laughs> true to Zeus's fashion. And I, I think that's why this is an interesting part of the story is that like there's no Demeter's role in precipitating the need for the deal to be made. Zeus, who is the father of Persephone, uh, setting up this deal, like that's all past and that's not really a part of the story anymore. It's really of like, okay, they have a relationship. They had been making it work for a period of time and now we've we've hit marriage slump of some kind, but it has real world repercussions for the mortals. So... The show also has percussions. It does have Um. percussions as well. I just need the Rura in there somewhere. (laughs) So I guess I'll throw this back to Sam um, because you have a very interesting discussion about the madness that Persephone is experiencing in the play as well. So I feel like as far as Persephone's madness goes, a lot of it stems from her issues with Hades. And then within a lot of that, she uses alcoholism to cope with how bad things have gotten with Hades and then how little she's actually able to make it back up to the surface. And within that you get lines like how it takes a lot of medicine to make it through the winter time. But I also feel like there are just so many little things that finally allow her to snap out of that. And I think a big part of that is seeing Eurydice be taken in much the same way that she was. And I think it's in either Epic 2 or no, it's in Chant where Eurydice is being, maybe it is an epic too, where she's being taken. I want to just say I'm really impressed by your intimate knowledge with all of these <laughs> songs in a way that like I'm, like the fact you just have them on recall is really impressive to me. <laughs> I, I, again, I listened to the entire soundtrack multiple times for weeks <laughs> on end to do this paper. My biggest issue is that they all kind of run together musically. And like where one ends, there's no clear separation where the next one begins. It's like Les Mis. Yeah. Very much yeah. so. <laughs> anyway, at the point where Eurydice is being taken and she's being circled by Hades, he's like a vulture circling her. We see as Persephone is going back down the lift, she's just watching with, the, again, this look of horror across her face. And it very much seems like how she was taken in the heart of Demeter which uh, revealed that uh, no one, either the deathless gods or mortal men, heard her voice. And that's very much what Eurydice goes through. And that's what allows her to finally say no when he asks her if she wants to have a drink later on. I do. I remember that. She's like, no, I've had enough. She's very, like, she's very firm about that. I like that. Yeah. I also I really like the sort of comparison that Orpheus even makes between himself and Hades and sort of Eurydice and Persephone in he's like, I know about this feeling because I felt it when I first saw her. And I know how you felt because like we both have the same type of love and they just sort of go about it in different ways and sort of the choices that they made. And I'm just I'm thinking now about how Eurydice when she's first in her overalls and she's like, why won't anybody look at me? Why won't anybody talk to me? It's like, she's so isolated. She's very alone. And I think that probably played into Persephone's like, I I know what 
it feels like to, for nobody to see you, nobody to hear you. Yeah, it's making me make all connections, all these connections in my brain. You guys, I'm having feelings. <laughs> <laughs> well, and to, to go off a little bit more what Lash just said, I was just thinking how Hades has the power to change his world for the sake of Persephone because he wants Persephone to say he wants control of her. And like it's interesting that we do have kind of the comparison between Orpheus and Hades and their love for the women, but Orpheus's move is instead to focus on changing the world for the better of everyone. And he ultimately loses the woman he loves as a result. Like he has to sacrifice that relationship to actually make the world a better place versus Hades is making the underworld more unbearable for everyone and is also going to lose the woman he loves for that reason. So it's it's very I like I don't know if I have a point there, but it was it was just very much like what do we sacrifice when we're trying to make big changes to the world good or bad? That that's yeah. a big question yeah. of this it seems like. It's a tragedy. It's a goat song. <laughs> yes. I was I was explaining that to my class the other day because we were reading about a tragedies or something, or we, there was a reading about tragedy. I'm like, oh yes, the goat song. <laughs> um, for listeners at home, that is because the word, the root word of tragedy is is tragos, which is a goat, and and aeotos, which is a song, and and. No one's exactly sure. I feel like why I think it's something to do with they got a goatskin prize, or maybe they used to wear goatskins when they were performing. But it's it's not because goats I'm, are beautiful singers. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> what's the I'm, I'm a throwback to uh, the Taylor Swift goat. Oh my <laughs> screaming god, goat. a YouTube video that's probably like ten years old now. <laughs> oh my goodness. Do we want to keep going plot-wise with songs, or there, there's definitely some other characters we haven't talked to yeah, too much about yet? I was thinking we could talk a little bit about maybe the main one we haven't talked about yet is Hermes. Mm -hmm. I love Hermes. I love him so much. I think the one that I watched was, is it Andre? Andre de Shields. Shields? Yeah. yeah. I don't know how anybody else could be Hermes. He was so brilliant. <laughs> He's the whiz. Uh. <laughs> He's so good. <laughs> mm -hmm. Just like every little like movement that he makes is so calculated and so you just your eyes are like drawn to his there. He he's also like on stage, I think, for almost the whole show. I mean, they're all on stage a lot, mm -hmm. but but he I think he never really leaves. He's always kind of there flitting in the background. And I really like I like the idea that he's like this. He's simultaneously like train conductor but also like band leader dance troupe leader or something like he's got this kind of master of ceremonies energy about him which i very much dig which i think is a good allusion mm -hmm. just to his role as psycho like you could have no other god really narrate the story because other than mm -hmm. persephone there's no other gods that move from the mortal realm to the underworld so like i think that was an excellent choice and then the other thing that i really like is he Again, is like the wingman for Orpheus. And it, it, there's a cool little explanation at the beginning of just like, I'm friends with his mom, you know, one of the muses. <laughs> so we go way back. So I, I watch out for him. And um, he is the one who, I think Sam said this earlier, passes the messages, particularly to Orpheus. Like he's kind of what clues Orpheus in when he's spacing out otherwise and he's too obsessed and focused with the song. And but the message that doesn't get through the one time is that Eurydice needs him. There's a storm and he needs to set the song aside and take care of her. And like Orpheus doesn't hear it. And I think it's, it's also just if you know 
Hermes is God of communication. You can read that as literally miscommunication happening between the two sides. I think there's that time and then there's towards the end when he's trying to warn Orpheus that the dog he has to fear isn't Hades, it's his own mind. I feel like that one also just goes in one ear, out the other. And that one really like hits home too. Oh, oh. And I was I was just thinking how it, it is it is kind of sad to think about that, you know, there is this abduction and rape story involved with the relationship between Hades and Persephone, but that's the one that could work out. Like it might be resolved in a happy manner. But Orpheus, who was very open and upfront with his feelings for Eurydice, both of them ultimately can't trust each other at the end. That's how Eurydice ends up in the underworld because she doesn't have enough faith in Orpheus. And that's what happens. Orpheus has already lost her and he's lost a little bit of faith that she is still there, Um, which is really sad because like theirs was almost more of a legit, a healthy relationship for Greek mythology, all things considered. And it's it's the one that ends in tragedy. Yeah, I think that that really says something about the society and the community that they sort of present these characters in as Eurydice like what her epitaph says, Eurydice like was a hungry girl. They keep saying that, right? And it's like she has all of this background of moving around and she's like left every place that she's been to. So she has a really, really hard time trusting, not because it's Orpheus, but because that's her lived experience. And I think, and Orpheus is like trying to do the right thing and he's doing like all of these huge, big things that nobody has done before. It's like this song is like, where is it coming from? What is it? What am I doing? Is it going to work? And so he barely has trust in himself. And that's from his own lived experience. And I I really liked that, actually. It was mm-hmm. it was so much from their own, from these characters as really developed characters for being just, what, like 30 minutes into a musical? Yeah. I think the, uh, one of the other lines of this song towards the end, hang on. Not as good at Sam at this. Doubt comes in. Okay, yeah. Doubt comes in, aptly named. Um, and he's like, how could I win against a god? Surely I, I must be wrong, which is it was kind of an interesting take because a lot of mythology is like, you don't get to win against the gods mm-hmm. uh, most of the time. When, or if you do, it's because Zeus let you and he's going to punish you later on. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I Wikipedia'd a little bit of information and apparently there's one other version of Orpheus in the Underworld in Plato's Symposium. Supposedly, um, in that case, Orpheus does think he's better than the gods because he's such a good songwriter. And Hades actually plays a trick by only showing him the image of Eurydice and like, and then ultimately makes sure like she won't escape. So they there is a version that Plato, and Plato's not a mythographer, so take this with a grain of salt, but where Orpheus in this more traditional sense of a mortal thinking they can better a god and they ultimately do not as a result. And that's also apparently, according to Plato, why Orpheus gets ripped up by a bunch of women because he tried to one-up Hades and you shouldn't do that. <laughs> to be fair, I have not read Plato's Symposium. I had enough with the shadows on the wall cave allegory thing. I didn't need to go much more than that. So sorry, classicist. That's fine. Sam, any any other point you really want to get out there that we haven't covered yet? Um, I don't think so. Just a couple things about like certain stagings are really fun to look at. 
Yeah, do you have one in particular that, like, jumps out? I think Doubt Comes In is definitely a very good contender for, like, most impactful. Mm-hmm. Because uh, mm-hmm. in the song before, in Wait For Me Reprise, you have a full stage, everyone's out, everyone's following Orpheus out of Hades Town. The music is in a major key. The lights are bright and so warm. And everything looks like it's going to work out, even though the Fates and Hermes all share that like something could definitely go wrong here in just the same song. And I feel like within that, that's what allows the audience to feel like, oh, maybe it will turn out this time. Maybe he'll save her. And then the second Doubt Comes In starts, all the lights go out. The music is so much slower. It's ominous. There's glissando. And the only person you can see is Orpheus. And he's just a single voice in the theater. And so anytime he sings, it's just he only ever hears the fates back. He only ever sees the fates again. And as he says, second guess himself, you see Eurydice briefly appear. Like even the audience can't see her half the time. I feel like that is such a good way to do it, to have even the audience in this state of suspended disbelief saying, where could she be? She has to be there. But what if she's not now? And then once she's in her final few lines, the light goes out on Orpheus. And as soon as he looks, we see he's on a completely different side of the stage. A really strong discordant note is playing. And it's just such a beautiful image. It's such a heart wrenching image. Yeah, we're also we're all not. Yeah, we're doing that not <laughs> thing again. Thinking about <laughs> it. Yes. <laughs> it's just so pretty to look at and it's so painful to look at. Especially um as she starts to disappear after they say each other's names one last time. He runs to the edge of the chasm, he just kneels there, broken. And again, it's just it didn't turn out. We knew it wouldn't turn out, but we hoped so strongly that it would. Yeah. Yeah. I can't top that. We should probably just end No, it, it brings <laughs> me to the question, though, that Aeneas was asking at the very beginning is, could an artist like herself, like Orpheus, affect change on a grand scale? And I, with the ending the way it is, and that's what Sam just described is like, it feels that that is the catharsis moment almost. Mm-hmm. Um, but then what I still love is just right after that, like, in his Hermes coming in and he's sad like he you feel the emotion from Hermes of this outcome and but he's like but you know I told you it was a sad song I'm going to tell it again and then slowly the stage is all reset Eurydice returns with her opening line it's all set up to happen again and like but it's all bright and exciting the possibility which I, I think is really beautiful and it makes me question like where did they land on this is like could art have an effect on a world that is harsh and corrupt and we're not even sure if Hades and Persephone's marriage works out for sure I feel like I, I take a, a cynical sort of view is that is sort of the well I think Hermes even says or no the fates they say nothing ever changes, right? It's like, why would you even try? And I feel like that's so much of any kind of activism in the world is like, it's so hard. Like the people in power are so entrenched and like nothing ever changes. Like, why would we even try? And maybe that sort of cyclical uh, storytelling is like, well, it's just going to happen again. I guess we still have to try. Like we can't not do anything. Like we we still have to tell the story. We still have to try. Even though that's kind of a sad a sad reading. 
Well, and I, I think the fun thing is too is you know the story of both Persephone and Hades and Orpheus and Eurydice have been told for so long, and, and we love that like it's been told, but it's also changed. Like there's always been slight changes. Even this version of it has changed what the story was before. And it's not enough to like it's the story is still very recognizable from its original form as far back as we can trace it, but like, but it has changed, which I don't know if that was intentional, but that's just maybe why we love these stories to begin with is like, yeah, it it's always going to be recognizable as this, but it has changed. Yeah. You just gotta notice it. But Colin, you're holding your kitty. Yeah, I'm just I just got my cat here and uh Leo, do you have anything to add? Okay, he's gonna sniff the mic. Does he take an uplifting message from Hades Town or uh Leo's answer is purely from one of just the craft where it's like you will if you're gonna pose a question like can art change the world, you can't you can't say yes because that's pretentious um <laughs> and maybe naive, but you also can't say no because that's like too much of a downer. So you gotta hit you gotta you gotta navigate it right into that sweet spot of what, what Eli was just describing. Which is a great Because I mean there are <laughs> you know, there are, you know, works and movies and plays and shows where they're like art can change the world which is a little i don't know maybe a little saccharine but how about for sam what do you think what do you take away from it i don't know if art can change the world but it can certainly change us and i feel like that is just as good as that my heart it's another like home run line there so (laughs) i was just just ready to like faint and be done with the day (laughs) yeah should we uh, should we talk favorite songs? Yeah, let's, yes. let's end on favorite song. Although I'm gonna have to take a moment to look through the list again and like come down on a. Yeah, well, there's like forty. Yeah, so, but I really, it's, it's one of those. I I love. It's like Les Mis, where is. there's like there's a hundred songs, but there's really kind of only four. But like I don't know, <laughs> there's more than four. But I really loved how long that Persephone and Hades when they were sort of talking, and it was this like big push and pull about their relationship and their feelings and also comparing themselves to the, these other people and what are you going to do? And oh, I really liked how long, but I think also the one that was always stuck in my head is way down Hades town. Yeah. Which is mm. oh, it's so good. Yeah. Bob. I like, especially just for a single character, um, our lady of the underground, just Persephone being in the underground and showing us how she copes with all of this and, I, we haven't even commented on the dress change that she has, but like she has the vibrant green outfit when she's on the surface and then like goes full black, like full goth yeah, Persephone. The, the funeral, basically. Yeah. yeah. When she's um, underground. And um, I, I I like a lot of the – it's so hard to choose and we've talked about it a lot. But I do like that one because we get kind of a playful Persephone. We get like, you know, she's in this situation and – you could argue if she's coping with it well or not, but she she's managing. She's like, all right, boys, let's have a good time and do what we can. So I really like uh, if it's true, because even though Orpheus is completely losing hope and he's literally on his way out the door, you have the ensemble, all the workers, they've heard his song. And that's what gives them hope. That what That's what gets them questioning Hades and why they should work. And I feel like that's such an underrated moment. And then Orpheus decides that even though things look hopeless, even though the fates themselves have told him that nothing changes, he's going to stand up and try anyway. I was almost going to be super basic and say, wait for me, but... Um, <laughs> that is a good one, too. Uh, but I, yeah. And the visuals are really uh, cool on that one. Yeah. Oh, the yeah. But, but, but mm-hmm. probably my favorite, the one that really popped for me was um, Why Do We Build the Wall? I just really like that. Partially, it was just Patrick Page, kind of that, like, yeah. his voice, 
his bass. I almost it's described as I was trying to say bass and voice at this. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Again, I don't know how anybody else plays that because Patrick Page Mm. was so good. (laughs) We talked about Persephone's costuming, but I also really liked Hades' costuming of like the very sort of smart striped three piece and the his like snakeskin boots yeah um, the sunglasses and, whenever he has to head up to the surface yeah. fingerless gloves <laughs> um and and, and his, his, yeah yes. his like sleeve tattoo of the wall awesome. i was trying to figure really is nice that a touch. real tattoo because i'm like oh that's just like okay otherwise was it was trying, very was, on the nose <laughs> i was trying to figure out if it was like painted on or if it was like one of those like you know kind of like fake sleeve things that you can get like a oh, like a yeah. stretchy I think it's a fabric sleeve because they have it on other characters too. He's also wearing that huge watch, which I imagine is probably good because it like hides the seam really well. All right. Should we call it there? Let's do it. Because I feel like the rest of this will just be me gushing into the (laughs) microphone. I've got one more, like just what's the favorite, not a song, but just like a moment because we hit the big one. And I will say mine is Persephone and. 80s i can't remember if it's right before they dance together but like the song is happening and all of a sudden the flower pops out again between them Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to be like oh yeah this is where we started so i liked that moment i think i really do like when orpheus turns around and like the lights come back on yeah and it's and everything is so still for that like deep breath that like everybody takes and that really stood out to me I like it when Orpheus starts singing and his song is like, I guess it's Epic Three and Hades goes, Oh, it's about me. Um, <laughs> that was a great was moment. <laughs> Chef's kiss. Uh, I'm fond of uh, the little tiny trust ball that uh, Eurydice does in the wedding song where she leans back and the table catches her. And I think mm-hmm. it's supposed mm-hmm. to like represent the river. Mm-hmm. And it's her just learning to trust and believe in Orpheus. It's so sweet. Yeah. All right. And so. Now we can leave it. I am satisfied. And <laughs> although right. I, I am enjoying watching Lige gush so much because this never happens. It never happens. <laughs> um, Mostly, usually this, this show is just Christy and I trying to convince Eli that she secretly digs. Everything. Like, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's uh, we we as our discussion sort of teeters into uh, just gushing more about this play. It's hard, really, to very often it's hard to talk about things you like because you kind of just keep coming back to like it was good and I liked it. But I think we actually got uh, we we got some ideas out there, and I want to take a, another moment just again thank our uh, our special guest Sam Lippert, really elevating all the conversation uh, again for any of one anyone listening. For the first time, you can find us on moviesvedig.com or follow us at, at @digmovies on Twitter. Please, if you haven't already, you know, like, review, subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us out. And we'll be back next week, I think, tentatively watching The Mummy uh, with another yes. special guest. So <laughs> stay tuned for that. I uh, thank you again, everyone, and bye. Bye. bye.